Well, welcome to the National Library of Australia this evening and welcome back to the National Thank Library you. to Meg Keneally. We're here tonight to celebrate this fabulous new novel, Fled, which I think has one of the most beautiful covers I have seen in a long time. Just, it almost makes you want to go off and sail the seven seas, but once you read it, you'll never want to step in a boat again. <laughs> I promise you that. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Catherine Favell and I have the very great privilege of being Director of Community Outreach here at the National Library. It gives me a wonderful excuse to occasionally read some great literature. To begin tonight, I thought I would just read a tiny bit from Fled, although it's not really from Fled, it's before Fled starts. But much of the Australian portion of this book takes place on the country of the Eora Nation. Mary Bryant and her family would have interacted with members of the Wongal people, the Gadigal and many others. They may also have had contact with the Awabakal and the people of the Torres Strait Islands, among other groups. We, Meg Keneally and Echo Publishing, and I'd like to add the National Library of Australia, Acknowledge the traditional owners of country on which this story unfolds and those throughout Australia, including the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people on whose land we're meeting tonight. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Meg, I think that's the first time I've read an acknowledgement of country at the start of a book. There, there was one other, there's a book called... I can't remember the title, but it was published a few years ago and it's about picnic and hanging rock. It's another look at... And, and yeah. there was... Uh, I pinched the idea from that. <laughs> All good ideas should be stolen, yes. I think. <laughs> so, Fled is mm. about... Well, is based on the life of Mary Bryant. Tell me how you came to discover her and how she became a part of your life that just wouldn't let you go. Well, um, uh, I, I, I enjoy blaming things on my father. And uh, <laughs> uh, th this one was definitely his fault. When we were um, kids, uh, mum and dad took us around America in a camper van for six months. And this was the days before iPads, so people had to be, parents had to be a lot more creative to stop their kids killing each other in the back seat. Uh, and so dad would tell a story after story after story, as would mum, and um, some of them were about children who rode on the backs of bees, and some of them were about talking volcanoes, and mixed in with all of these were uh, real stories um, from history. And uh, Ben Hall was a big one, I remember, but Mary Bryant was another one that I recall was mentioned. And then, uh, I, I was so I was always peripherally aware of her, and then when Dad and I were, were, were researching The Soldier's Curse, which is the first book of the Montserrat series, mm. we were having a restorative glass of wine at a riverside pub um, after a day of traipsing as around. You as you do. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, we were talking about some of the extraordinary stories you find when you start scratching the surface. And Dad looked at me and said, someone should write a book about Mary Bryant. Wink, wink. Um, <laughs> and I thought, yeah, well, Maybe, and I started researching her, and after that she wouldn't leave me alone. And But when it got to the point where my friends were avoiding me because they didn't want to hear me talk about Mary <laughs> Bryant anymore, I thought it's time to exercise this ghost and write the story. 
Had she been just quietly sitting in the back of your mind all that time or did it really take a conversation to remind you of those stories in the back of the car and start the itch? Yeah, it's funny. I was I was aware of her. Um, she had been sort of lurking around in the back of my mind along with my other favourite colonial Mary, Mary Reby, mm-hmm. um, uh, the cross-dressing horse thief on the $20 note. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so both of them I love, and I want uh, uh, Mary Reby shows up as a character in a book I'm, I'm writing on it, uh, writing at the moment. Um, but it was I was sort of so focused on this fictional world that Dad and I were building together, set against the factual backdrop of uh, New South Wales in the 1820s. That it sort of when he said that it sort of jolted me, and I went, oh yeah, actually yes. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I get all my best ideas from my father. (laughs) (laughs) And you're not saying that just because he's in the front row. No, that's right. (laughs) I was going to ask you how, what was different for you? You, Mm. You've been writing as part of a team, Mm. um, writing four books now in the Montserrat series with the fifth coming. Mm. What was the greatest surprise for you in being, uh, in writing on your own on on this occasion? well, it it was. I guess it it felt a little bit like flying without a safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, even though um, uh, Tom very kindly and my and my mother Judy, who's also here tonight, uh, read the manuscript um, or the first two thirds of the manuscript before it was published and gave me some invaluable feedback. Uh, it was kind of like taking the training wheels off. Um, but uh, uh, it was. I mean, it was a fascinating process. Um, and it was a little bit hard to keep track of things because I wrote half of it, then I wrote, I think, The Power Game, which is the third book in the Montserrat series, Mm -hmm. Uh, and the way Dad and I work on the Montserrat series is that we plot it together, then I write the first couple of drafts in constant consultation with him, and then we we rewrite it together. So I was flipping between the two, so there were some days when I wasn't quite sure whether I was writing by myself or with Dad and what time period I was yeah. in and whether it was Mrs Mulrooney or Je- Jenny Trelawney, I wasn't quite <laughs> sure what was what. But, yeah, it was certainly a very interesting experience. Mm. Mm. It must have been quite a, um, a brain shift, actually, to, yes. to yeah, move not only between years. stories but between writing mm. practices. Yes, yes, it was. But, it was. I mean, it was it was invigorating, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, Fled is based on Mary's life, mm-hmm. but you've chosen to write a novel rather mm. than a history or a biography, and I mm. wonder what led you down the novelisation path. Um, I wanted to... One of the things that really drew me into the story was wondering what things must have been like for her, thinking why would she put her children at such risk, mm. for example. Why did she feel she had no choice? What kind of person was was she that she was able to achieve this remarkable escape? What kind of person was she that she was able to be one of the drivers or or the driver of um, uh, of this endeavour? And I do believe she was, and I believe there's significant circumsta- circumstantial evidence that she was, which I'll go into into later, if she, if, if you like. So, in order to answer all those questions. Um, I had to get inside her head, and given that she was illiterate, she didn't leave any journals, any letters. Uh, so it was really hard to... You, 
I mean, you can tell she's a tantalising figure to research because you can tell more about her by the hole she leaves mm -hmm. uh, than anything else. Uh, and I really wanted to give a sense of what she thought and felt and believed. And we can certainly tell from her actions that she was no shrinking violet. But beyond that, I didn't want to ascribe feelings and thoughts and beliefs to a woman who actually lived when I didn't know whether they were hers. So that was the main reason yeah. why... I decided to give her a different name, make it a fictional story based on fact, together with the fact that I changed a few basic facts of the of, of the story just for, for narrative reasons. Uh, for example, uh, there were actually 11 people in the boat. I've got six. But when you're writing a novel... Um, Every character needs to have a reason to be there. They need to earn their place on the page. And if I gave every, if I gave eleven people, each of the eleven people in the boat, a backstory and a reason to be there, the, the people would have sued me when they dropped the book and broke their toes. So, <laughs> now, so I made a few changes like that. But the main reason was so that I could really get inside her head without feeling like I was verbaling someone. It's occurred to me that. We have just dived straight in mm. to the middle of a conversation, um, which I feel like I've kind of been having with Meg for the, the last few days as I've been reading Fled. But you may not know the backstory of Mary Bryant, mm. who's become Jenny Trelawney in the book. Do you want to just give us Mary Bryant's yeah. life in a nutshell? Mary Bryant's life in a nutshell. Mary was um, born... Uh, in May uh, 1765 in a small Cornish town called Foy, which is just across the river from Bodnick, where Daphne de Maurier grew up. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, her father was a mariner. Um, she, by all accounts, was very, very good on the water as well. Um, and uh, we don't know why she decided to or felt that she had to turn to crime. No doubt poverty was involved um, because uh, in the book the Pilchards disappear and that they actually did. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden this, this entire community whose staple diet was Pilchards uh, couldn't get them and couldn't salt the ones they had because they were being taxed um, out of existence and this, it, it, one, of, one of the commodities that was being taxed to pay for the War of Independence was, uh, was salt. So they couldn't salt the ones they had. So they were in, um, uh, in dire straits. Um, we know that Mary uh, robbed a woman called Agnes Lakeman, together with two other girls with whom she was transported. She took her bonnet. There was uh, some question of physical assault um, and she was, uh, she was charged with um, felonious assault and robbery on the King's Highway. Uh, she gave her address as Forest Dweller. So I've sort of... When you're writing historical fiction, you really grab onto details like that and squeeze as much as you can out of them. So uh, I have um, I've made up a lot, simply because there's, there's nothing concrete mm -hmm. to go on. I've made up a lot about her descent into crime and the reasons behind it, uh, based around a few little nuggets of fact like the fact that she was a forest dweller, like the fact that she was arrested with two other girls. Anyway, um, uh, she was uh, sentenced to death, commuted to transportation. Um, while she was on a hulk waiting for to be transported, she fell pregnant. We don't know who to. Uh, she gave birth on the Charlotte on the way to Australia. Um, 
when she got to Australia, she married Will Bright, who was like her Cornish, who was uh, a fisherman who was arrested for resisting a revenue officer, which mm -hmm. means basically he was a smuggler. Uh, in all likelihood, um, she had another. They married. She had another child to him, and uh, ultimately, they and other convicts nicked the governor's cutter, sailed it to West Timor um, over 69 days uh, with monstrous seas. They discovered coal in Newcastle. They were the first Europeans to walk on the Great Barrier Reef. They ate turtles on Lady Elliot Island. After 69 days, they reached. Um, West Timor, and every single one of them was alive, which to me is a feat of survival which is up there with Shackleton. You know. And amazing when you think yeah. that some of the people who were alive were two small children. Yes, absolutely, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. Yeah. yeah, that's extraordinary. That mm. sounds like a really good moment, though, to ask you to yes. read a little bit from the of beginning course. of the book to put us right into the middle of that voyage. So um, there are certain people who I write with who occasionally think I start things too much in media res, you know what I mean, in the middle of things. Uh, but this book, um, I, I couldn't resist starting right in the middle of it. Somewhere in the Tasman Sea, off New South Wales, April 1791. She never slept deeply, not here. Even if she had, this wave would have woken her, elongating up to the sky and then bending its force down onto their small boat. She gripped the children before her eyes were fully open. She lived now with the humming fear of one of the ropes she had used to tie them breaking, of waking to find a child gone, of realising they had probably already travelled halfway through the blackness to the sea floor. They were both there. If Emmanuel was making any sound, she couldn't hear it, not above the wind. She couldn't hear Charlotte either, but the little girl's mouth was open and stretched by terror. She was probably crying, but it was impossible to tell as the constant spray claimed all tears. Her husband gripped the tiller in the fading light, sitting in water that stopped only a few inches from the gunwales. He was grinding his teeth, trying to keep the boat pointed into the waves, probably worrying that the sun would betray him by setting and that the boat would suddenly find itself side on to a salt monster. Jenny had been dreaming of Penmore, its stillness, its muted, deadening light of the family's narrow, crammed house. Now, though, its door was splintered, its remnants hanging open on one of its hinges as though somebody had enjoyed pulling it out of its frame and destroying it. She had called or tried to, but it was a whisper. She inhaled, tried again, but no matter how much breath she added to it, the sound would not increase. In any case, there was no answer. But someone was there. Her father was lying on the f in front of the fire where they had put him after the wreck, still pale and swollen from the sea. Her mother sat in the same chair as always. Had she moved? Had she spent in that chair the years which had propelled her daughter over impossible seas to an implausible country? Her mother started to speak, but her cheeks cracked from the side of her mouth to her ears, and instead of speech, she ejected a blast of wind that sent Jenny back down the hill into the dream sea from which she surfaced into consciousness and the chaos of the waves. It must have gathered quickly this storm. There had been some chop when she'd gone to sleep in the late afternoon and since then the winds had been pummeling the water into a new substance altogether, a landscape of moving mountains where no boat had any business existing. And it wouldn't, not for long, not if they didn't start bailing. 
Carney was at the sail, trying to get it down before the wind punched a hole in it, but Harrigan was no use. He had, he had uh, retained enough consciousness to lift himself from the bottom of the boat when the wave hit, sitting up so that he looked like a duchess in a bath, but he still had that stare, still looked as though he was viewing a different world from the rest of them, one far more horrific. Bruton, meanwhile, just sat there, hanging onto his bench, his eyes flicking from Jenny to her children. No doubt he was resenting them, useless passengers who contributed nothing to his survival. She rolled her lips together. Why in God's name did she always have to harangue the men? Why couldn't they see what needed doing and just do it? She kicked at the privy bucket, its edges sticking up from the water inside the boat. Bail, for God's sake, we'll founder, and soon you have to bail. But Bruton kept staring, not the type to take orders from a woman who'd tied herself to a bench. The boat was slowly grinding up a wave which disappeared underneath them, sending them crashing down. The impact dislodged some of the water, but then added more, and when Jenny wiped her eyes, she saw Bruton, stubborn but not stupid, frantically bailing with the privy bucket. Somewhere beyond these waves was a place where their choices extended beyond drowning or starvation, where, they, where, where she wouldn't have to clench her arms around the children and tell the sea it couldn't have them. But they hadn't reached it yet. Sometimes when the sea was at its worst, she wondered if they ever would. So that's the... It's a lovely beginning because I think it brings together quite a number of the concerns of the novel, for me, as a reader mm. anyway. Um, and one of the, the things that I think surprised me... Are, once I got to the end, was how many women there are in this story. Mm. I don't know about you, but I'm very used to the stories of the early settlement of Australia being very male, you know? It's all the blokes. Mm. Philip, Bly, Watkin Tench. Stories about the fellas, James Roos, Governor MacArthur. Um, it was terrific to read in Fled a book that encompasses a whole lot of women's lives, mm -hmm. from Jenny's uh, widowed mother right mm -hmm. at the very beginning through to Mrs Titchfield, who's had her own tragedy in life mm. but has become a housekeeper to a very wealthy man, mm. um, nanny to a very wealthy man. There's such a diversity <coughs> of lived experience of women mm. in this book. How important was is it for you to be recreating these stories of the early women of this country yeah. that we now live in. I, I think women's history has been undertold to, uh, to this point. And, you know, part of the reason for that is that um, uh, many women were illiterate, of course, so they didn't leave any journals and so on to base things on. Um, but I think it's just... It, it used to be assumed, I think, when I was a kid, not by, not by people I knew, but the world more generally, that it was the men <laughs> who made history and the women who made the tea, you know. And yeah. uh, I'm fascinated by stories of women like Mary Bryant because um, not only is what they achieved remarkable and would have been remarkable even if they were male, the fact that they had to stretch that much further because they were female. And there were very few people in the world more powerless than a, than a female convict. Uh, so that fascinates me and what fascinates me as well is, is the wit that they needed to use to navigate through the world, uh, to ensure their survival, the survival of their children. Uh, and there are, mm. you know, there are a great many women who, who 
did extraordinary things like um, like Mary Reby. You can't blame her for the Royal Commission, but she was one of the founders of the Bank of New South Wales. Um, like a woman I want to write about uh, next called Charlotte Badger, Australia's first female pirate, and her friend Kitty Hegarty. Now, Kitty Hegarty is a troublemaker's name, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to writing that one. Yeah. There is, there's a lovely little moment in <coughs> um, Fled where you reference the taming of the shrew. Mm. And at that moment, my, my brain went into excitement, you know, because mm. it is one of my favourite plays. Mm. But I loved the idea of Jenny as this very strong-willed woman trying to be forced to be mm. tamed by the society that yes. she lives in. There are lots of tensions in the book between the needs of the individual and the mm. needs of the society and the government. And the family. And, yeah. um, was that something you were cons consciously teasing out? Um, it sort of was. I think probably what I was, what I was most um, interested in um, at, a, uh, um, at a conscious level was the, uh, a, a couple of things. The idea of resistance to female power mm -hmm. uh, and to female leadership, um, the as I said, the, the the concept of precisely what women had to do to survive and to ensure their children's survival. Um, I was also really interested in in looking at the world in which Jenny lived uh, because I think it's important to have a sense of how people lived then because there are people in the world who are still living like that. So in a lot of ways, it's not history. Yes, yeah. and that, that reminds me of an article mm. that you wrote for The Guardian yeah. drawing parallels between the boat people uh, yes, who were the asylum convicts and, and asylum yeah. seekers yeah. now too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, um, I feel very you know, strongly that, um, uh, that our treatment of, of, of asylum seekers is inhumane, just as our treatment of... Uh, uh, just as the treatment of convicts then was uh, was inhumane, um, but uh, there was a review in the Australian of Fled recently, and the the writer made another point that I was also very interested in, which is like this is what the world looks like without welfare. This is what the world looks like without the social cohesion necessary mm -hmm. to lift up those who those who need it. Um, people just die, you know. It's uh, um, and I think it. That's I a really think interesting can, point. Mm. It is, yeah. Mm. And I think it's always good to. It always bears remembering what the world is like once this thin veneer of. Um, a sort of you know what once the rights that we take for granted, are taken away, we would devolve very quickly. You know, uh, if if they were to be taken away, and I think it, you know, it bears a reminding that. Uh, it bears remembering that, that it's, it's not that far back that this and, was what life was and like. And that raises some really interesting questions mm. about what fiction can do mm. um, in our society now. Yeah. What, what's its role? What do you... Are well, you telling a good story or are you motivated by something else in, in writing? I think the first thing you have to do is tell a good story because that's kind of your job. Yeah. And no matter what other points you want to make, they won't be received if you're not telling a good story. Um, but uh, but I do think I do think fiction um, has a role in illuminating things. I think historical fiction, which is my sort of sandbox, particularly, um, 
is important because it illuminates the fact that there are universal human experiences over centuries, which in turn makes it easier for people to understand that there are universal human experiences over cultures or over races and so on. Mm. Uh, and also, as I said, the idea that um, uh, there are still people living in the conditions that these people lived in. One of the things... <coughs> so the second act of the book mm. is really set in the early years of the colony. Mm. And one of the things I think that you do very beautifully and sympathetically is depict the Eora people. Thank you. Um, they are some of the most wonderful characters in the book, I think. They just leap off the page. But we know that today mm. writing about Indigenous lives is quite fraught yeah. for those of us who aren't Indigenous. Yep. How did you tackle that part of the story? That was probably the hardest part of it for me because... Um, and, and there were times when I wanted to just back away from the whole thing because of that, because it's very, very painful history. And mm. for many Indigenous people, it's not really history because they're still living with the reverberations of that day. Um, uh, so in the end, though, I mean, I thought, am I going to write this or am I not? Yes, I am. And so the next choice was which wasn't really a choice, was do, do I include Indigenous characters? And, of course, it would, would be ridiculous not to. It would perpetuate the whole Terra Nullius myth like that um, miniseries Banished did, mm -hmm. which just had no Indigenous characters at all and lots of convicts with all their teeth and clear skin. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, so having made the decision that I was going to include those characters, because... Mary and her husband Will were friends with Ben Long. There's a scene in the in the in the book where the boat uh, capsizes and it's 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 rescued by the Eora, uh, and uh, that actually happened. Mm -hmm. uh, Will Bryant used to take Ben Long's family out fishing, and presumably picked his brains about tides and currents and where the best fishing spots were. Um, uh, Mary knew Barangaroo, so. Um, uh, so I wanted to portray those relationships, but at the same time, they're very, they're a little arm's length because they're, obviously the book is being told through the one woman's perspective and the indigenous people in the book are seen through that perspective because I don't feel I have the right to write about colonization from an indigenous perspective. That's yeah. not my story to tell. Um, uh, so, you know, I really, that, as I was saying to you before, I hope I got it right. People will let me know if I haven't, I'm sure. What's the, the editorial process like mm. when you're writing about Indigenous people now, though? Do you go to beta readers? Or yeah, there, I mean, there's no sort of set-in-stone process. I, um, I was able to find a um, Daryl Gelder, which is the next sort of group to the, uh, to the West who was willing to read it. I tried to approach um, uh, uh, various um, people from the Eora Nation uh, and wasn't able to find anyone willing to read it. And it occurred to me that maybe I was being quite incredibly insensitive, asking them to read this story about the day everything changed for them. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, whether that was the case, I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure. But um, as I said, it's living history. 
for them. So the the Darrell Gelder, who, who very kindly uh, kindly read it, uh, didn't flag any issues with any sensitivity concerns, and I haven't had anyone do so in in the in the month and a bit it's been out. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I certainly think if you're going to be writing about Indigenous people, um, there is still this gap of understanding, and you really do need to get someone to run the run the ruler over it. <laughs> Help you close the gap. Yeah. 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 One of the really strong themes running through FLED for me is uh, the importance of reputation and public perception. Mm. And in fact, I found it quite contemporary um, at times as there are a number of characters who explore what it means to be famous. Mm. And there's a, a beautiful little comment from a character, Richard Aldred, um, where he talks about the need to constantly be feeding fame, his fame all the time. He has mm. to do the next stunt yes. almost. It's very um, reality TV in that yes, way. Yes, it is. But also the role, the book explores the role that your reputation and people's perceptions mm. have on, on your life. And yeah. in fact, much of Jenny's good fortune comes mm. through the way people perceive her. Yes. Were you thinking about how much of that exploration was conscious cause, or was it being driven by the story and that then you look back at it and go, wow, mm. I've got all of these little dots connecting up? Yes, yeah, it's funny. Your subconscious does a lot of the work for you. Um, so you do sometimes write something just because you think it's a good story or just because it's based on something that happened and then you step back and go, oh, well that's actually all reverberating and singing together nicely. Uh, so um, uh, I hope my subconscious doesn't ask for part of the advance, but my subconscious <laughs> did, a lot of the, uh, did, did, did a lot of the work on that. I was so really interested in that concept of um, we tend to think of fame as a relatively modern concept. Uh, but Mary Bryant, when she got back to England, <coughs> pardon me, was the... Um, uh, 18th century equivalent of an Instagram star. Mm. And uh, James Boswell, on whom Richard, uh, Richard Aldred is based, uh, her, her saviour, um, was essentially an 18th century Cleaver Green. He was, uh, he was a lawyer, he was obsessed with justice, but he was also a huge drinker. His journals talk about... I was reading one of his journals and he talks about what he'd had to drink the night before and he started with claret and then he went on to some Malmsey and then there was some port involved mm. and then they went on to sherry and then they finished off the night with, with whiskey. Um, uh, so he was, a, he was a big, big drinker. He was... Uh, he kept scandalising people by showing, back up, showing up in England with French aristocratic ladies when he had a... A, a faithful wife tucked away in Scotland. Uh, so, um, so he was a larger-than-life figure himself. Uh, he uh, was Dr Johnson's biographer, of course. Mm. Um, uh, and it's thanks to both his fame... Her fame when she got back to England attracted him to her, but it was his fame which enabled him to save her mm. from the gallows. Um, when Mary Bryant got back to England, she was basically it basically became a cause celeb. She was called the girl from Botany Bay. Um, uh, people were amazed by what she and the other survivors had been through, but particularly her, because she was a woman. 
um, and uh, there was a general feeling that she had um, that she'd suffered enough and Boswell took up her cause and the cause of the other surviving convicts. Um, there is a strong sense that you get of how fickle the justice mm. system was. Oh, extremely. No rhyme or reason at all. I mean, to be honest, Mary Bride, who committed a violent robbery, um, did pretty well to get transported under the um, under the the you know, the, the, the mores of the time where pickpockets were sometimes hanged, you know. Mm. Uh, and it was very haphazard, as were, as, was, as were the number of people, who, as were the people who were put onto the First Fleet because those ships were supposed to be loaded with stonemasons and carpenters and farmers and fishermen and really useful people. Uh, and um, Will Bryant was the only trained fisherman in the entire First Fleet. Uh, James Roos was one of the only farmers... Um, you know, so they were pretty light on mm. for the kind of expertise that they were supposed to have in bucket loads. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, uh, so both who who was spared the noose, who was transported, uh, where they were transported to, it was all... I don't think there was much coordination. It was all pretty haphazard. Yeah, mm. pretty random, I think. Yes. Mm. You've mentioned looking at... Uh, diaries and mm. um, researching the historical records. Mm. Um, Geraldine Brooks um, said, in fact, I remember her saying it here years mm. ago, one th thing about research and writing where she said, you have to let the story tell you what you need to know. Yes. That there comes a point where you need to stop researching and I think start that's true. writing. Yeah. For you, and there's a huge amount that you need to know mm. from, you know, how to fish in the 1790s, mm. the ways the currents and the winds move up the yeah. coast, um, how to salt pilchards. At what point does the research stop and the writing start for you? I think there comes to a point, you, you get to a point where you think, if I read one more thing about this, um, I'm going to, you know, explode. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, me with my limited mental capacity, there's only so much I can retain with the immediacy that you need to weave a story mm -hmm. out of it. Um, so you actually need to, or I find that I need to have the information in my head at the time that I'm writing. Uh, it doesn't really work for me if it's on a notepad or in a book next to me or on the, uh, on the internet. So you, you, you get the information that... I tend to sort of read, do a general read about what I'm going to write next while I'm writing the previous thing mm -hmm. uh, uh, and get a sense of the shape of the story. But then when it comes to actually writing it, you read what you need to read for that scene or this is what I do. You, uh, I read what I need to read for what's coming up next and then I just go splat. So that suggests you're a really good plotter as well and you have a, wow, a good structure to start with. Well, I was, I was lucky because this, this came with its own pre-built structure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, very considerately, Mary Bryant's life fell into three acts and um, uh, I'm struggling a little bit more with the current novel I'm writing, which is a lot more fictional and has two main characters over two different time periods. Uh, so I wish I was the kind of 
I wish I had the kind of brain that Peter Carey does and he sort of plots out every chapter bullet points before, you know, he writes it. Uh, mm. Or Jane Harper, who I interviewed once in an In Conversation, who, you know, writes chapter two and then she writes chapter ten and then she go back, goes back and writes chapter five and so on. Orwell did it that way as well. I would love to have that level of mental organisation. I just don't, I'm afraid. But do you need that thinking about the Montserrat series mm. where you're solving mysteries do you need that kind of plotting in that sense or do you go back and insert there's a lot of clues along the way there's a lot of retrofitting um we uh we we figure out the plots on long walks because we uh, dad and i both think better when we're in the bush and walking Mm -hmm. um and then i sort of write up a bit of a three-page synopsis or whatever and that's my little roadmap uh but it always changes and there's always, okay, he can't do that here because then that means he won't be able to do that there. Or he can't, you know, he can't know this here because he's not, you know, that isn't revealed until... Uh, so, you know, things do um, present themselves as you're writing. Uh, and I think... I used to think, well, maybe I should just plot a bit more before I start writing... But I think people's minds work in different ways. And the way my, my mind works is that I sort of... in the, the first draft is a process of excavating the story and things mm-hmm. pop up as you're writing it and can't pop up without you writing them. You know, the, the, the process of you writing them is what brings them to the surface. Do you write by hand or onto a computer? Uh, I... Um, uh, anyone who's seen my handwriting would know that me writing by hand would be a bit of a disaster. Uh, I write onto a computer, but I also dictate a lot, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, you know, increases your output. And the kids are used to me wandering around the house going, comma, close quotes, he said, full stop, new paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you can punctuate out loud as well. <laughs> Well, sometimes I sometimes it's hard to switch 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 gears, and I'm like, "Clean your room, comma close quote." She said, exclamation mark. <laughs> now we're going to open the floor to your questions because I have been hogging Meg. It's been a very great privilege. Um, Katrine and Millie have microphones, and we are recording tonight. So if you would wait for a microphone, that would be great. While you're thinking of questions, could I ask you, Meg, Mm. you've given us a lovely little insight into your writing process. You're churning out quite a number of books at the moment. There's lots of things on the go. Um, It's the mortgage and the cat has expensive tastes. Are you a (laughs) nine-to-five writer or a nine-to-three writer or a nine-to-ten-a.m. and then have a drink writer? I've got a... Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, I've got a a day job which starts at 2am and ends at about 8. And then I I pretty much settle down at about 9.30 or 10 Mm. and go until... Um, various critters get home from various educational institutions at about four, at which point family life sort of takes over and makes. I'm never complaining about my difficult. day job again. I don't know that I could do <laughs> two a.m. starts every day. Oh, sometimes I need a bit of a nap. Yeah, I can <laughs> but, imagine. Uh, but yeah, I find I I find that having a routine is really really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I basically do. A thousand words, and then have 
a break and then a thousand words and then a break and so on. So in a first draft, I'll probably do about three to four thousand words a day. Uh, once I get into the into the role of it, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, uh, second drafts, you know, I, I try to edit twenty pages a day, but gosh, sometimes. How many drafts do you, would you do? Because I was at a book launch for four. I'd say on average. Four. I could cope with four. So a friend of mine admitted to doing 40 oh, of his wow. book that's just pu- been published and I thought that's too much for me. Well, they do. Dad, who was it who said books aren't so much finished as abandoned? <laughs> uh, he's a, I forget his name, but he did suicide. Right. Oh. <laughs> so abandoning is not a good idea. Well, it's, uh, and I mean, you do get to a point where, where you think, I just can't stand to look at this thing anymore. Yeah. So for me, the first draft is getting it all out and onto the page, and momentum is really important for keeping you going. Second draft is fixing all of the massive problems that <laughs> emerged during the first draft. Um, the third draft is doing more of a line-by-line edit and looking at the language, and the fourth draft is a bit of a polish. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to the publishers, and then they come back with a structural edit and then a copy edit and then first pages. So I probably touch each book seven or eight times, yeah, in yep. total, I'd say. It's a labour of love after a while, isn't it? Well, or maybe it's a labour of love for hate. <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny... It's either transcendent about 5% of the time and the rest of the time it feels like you're etching the story onto granite with the bloodied stumps of your fingers mm-hmm. and there's no sort of in-between, but we do it for the 5% of the time it's transcendent. <laughs> so, who would like to ask Meg a question? Has anyone got some thoughts, stories, comments? I need to have a bowl of lollies for those who go first. Thank you. I absolutely love the book. I. I'm interested in the character of Jenny. Mm. She's a person who's very admirable and you, you know, fantastic strength, extraordinary woman. Mm. But as a personality, a bit hard to like, very gravel, yeah. quite gravelly in lots of ways. And I was just yes. interested in whether that just emerged or that was a deliberate decision on your part. No, it, it, she, just, she just presented herself that way. Um, and I always find, you know, when a book is working, when the character's completely ignore you, give you the middle finger and go off and do their own thing. And she just, she, she, as I was writing her, she just emerged as um, a sort of hard-edged, uh, tough woman. And I think also, I, I don't think, I think she probably needed to be to survive. Um, uh, and we, we, we've all encountered the type of personalities who show their love through toughness. Um, uh, and uh, she was, you know, I saw her very much as somebody who would be like that with, with you know, with her children. She, those, those who, at least Jenny as a character, I see her as someone who, those who she loves, she fiercely loves, uh, but she's not afraid to whack them over, the, you know, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, upside the back of the head or, 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 or whatever as well. Uh, but, yeah, I... I, I she she just showed up like that and said, write this story or else. So. <laughs> I'd be interested to, to know, there were mo- moments mm. where she reminded me very much of Lindy Chamberlain when Lindy Chamberlain was going through... Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. 
when we first saw her, actually, yeah. after the death of Azaria, and we mm. all thought she was very self-contained and tough mm. and heartless. But and there was a, a lot like going that. on. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a moment like that in in, in the book for Jenny as well. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, some people have said to me that life was cheaper then, infant mortality was higher, perhaps people not so much didn't care but were more prepared for their children to die. I don't buy that uh, no. for one second because I think fierce maternal love is one of the things that has allowed our species to get to, to this point and I don't think people in um, 17, the 1790s love their children any more than, than, than we love ours today. Um, but as you say, you're, you're, you're right actually, there is something of the... Lindy Chamberlain, but inside she's been scoured out. Yeah. You know. mm. Yeah. Thank you for your question. Mm. Has anyone else got a question? This gentleman over here. Thanks, Millie. Thank you. I haven't read the book yet, Meg. I've got a bit of a cold at the moment. Sorry about that. No um, The relationship in real life between Will mm. and Mary. Yes. And how that fed into your story. Mm. Um, what sort of relationship did they have and, and how strong a character was Will compared to Mary? Well, um, they had, I think you could say, a fraught relationship. We don't know the circumstances around which Mary convinced Will to marry her, uh, but he was a bit of a catch for her because he was an important man as the only trained fisherman in the colony and she had a young uh, a baby by someone else. We do know that after they married, Will... Um, uh, went around saying to people, uh, th this marriage isn't... Th no bans were read, this marriage isn't valid mm -hmm. anywhere but here. Um, and they were married, you know, in very early February 1788, along with uh, with four other convict couples. Um, <coughs> pardon me, I've got a bit of a cold as well, sorry. Um, uh, so we know that he was, you know... He was chafing against it and that he was threatening to sign on uh, as a mate um, on the first ship he could as soon as his sentence had expired. But we also know that he was quite indulgent and affectionate to Charlotte, Mary's child by we don't know who, uh, and that, um, that they did seem to have a degree of partnership. I mean, there's a lot we don't know, of course. Uh, he was said to have been possessive of her. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, I, 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 think, I think it started out essentially as a transactional relationship, uh, but would have been, I think there would have been some camaraderie there, some affection, but it's by no means, um, the, uh, it's by no means a romance for the ages, I don't <laughs> think. Thank you. Anyone else? Got a question? If not, Ooh. would you tell us what you're working on next? You've alluded to it. Yes. And yeah, so at the moment I'm working on a book called The Wreck, which is set in um, Sydney in 2020 and 1820. And the 2020 portion uh, centres around a shipwreck I've always been fascinated uh, about. I, I'm a bit of a shipwreck obsessive and ocean obsessive. Um, uh, which you might have potentially guessed. Um, uh, <laughs> that uh, and scuba diving gives you away, yes, I think. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, and uh, this wreck in this book is a fictional wreck, but it's based on a wreck that actually occurred a few decades later called the Dunbar. 
and the Dunbar has always fascinated me because it was um, wrecked just a little south of a place called The Gap, basically a kilometre or so mm. outside of the entrance to Sydney Harbour, having come all the way from England. It basically ran into the cliffs. Um, and uh, what was ha it was midnight and I think they were trying to get into the harbour. They, we, we'll never know what really happened, but they mistook, um, it's thought, they mistook the gap for the entrance to the harbour. And of course, it being dark, didn't realise uh, what, um, uh, what it, you know, what peril they were in until it was too late. And the force of this impact must have been extraordinary. It was terrible, terrible weather. The lighthouse keeper at Macquarie Lighthouse at the time report, reported that his dog kept on running to the cliff, barking, mm. running back, running to the cliff, barking, running back. But he couldn't hear anything above the roar of the storm. The next morning, Sydney awoke to big slabs of ship floating into the harbour, dead cattle, dead horses, um, pieces of human. Uh, it was such a fierce impact that people reported seeing dismembered limbs being thrown up on the, on the waves. Um, uh, and there was one survivor, one wow. man survived. Uh, and he ultimately became a lighthouse keeper and never went to sea again, oddly enough. Uh, and uh, um, to, to do, my, my, my modern character is a maritime archaeologist and I did a maritime archaeology course at the National Maritime Museum and they brought out tray upon tray of artefacts from the Dunbar, you know, buckles and buttons and I always find it quite heartbreaking to see these everyday objects and think, when that person put the belt on which that buckle once was on on that morning, they didn't know it was the last time they'd ever fasten a buckle, you know, yeah. that sort of sort of thing. And, and I held in my hand some of the nails and bolts that held this ship together, and they were in S shapes and sort of absolutely compacted just by the mm. force of the impact of the ship against the cliffs. So... Um, yeah, so uh, that, that wreck has always interested me. I did put it a few, I, have, I am putting it a few decades earlier because I want it to coincide with another event in England called the Cato Street Conspiracy, which came after yet another event called the Peterloo Massacre. So, uh, so that's coming part of the, 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 the story. Well, yeah. let me show you what I found in our collection because I did read that you were interested in the wreck of the Dunbar. Oh, look at that. This is a little bit of ribbon and I think it was actually our treasures curator, Nat Williams, who um, came across it. There are many things hidden in our collection that you don't quite realise what they are until you look at them. The catalogue doesn't quite describe them well enough. This little piece of ribbon was found by Mrs. Rita Spectre in an antique market in London in 1965. Wow. It had on it a little note that said it was from the wreck of the Dunbar. And bless her socks, mm. she came home and she sent it to the National Library of Australia as a gift. So oh, God, we now her. have it in our collection and I think we had it in our treasures gallery um, not wow. too long ago. But if you're interested in the story, there's... Uh, Nat Williams has written a little article mm. for Unbound, which is our online magazine. If you Google Dunbar NLA Unbound, uh, you'll find the piece that he wrote about it. But mm. it's quite an extraordinary 
little piece of ephemera of a tragedy that you just don't know Absolutely. the full story of. Yeah, Who was no, wearing that ribbon? It, 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 it's, it, I find it very moving to see things like that. I really do find it extremely moving when you think that that, that wreck is still New South Wales' deadliest maritime disaster. Mm. Um, extraordinary. Uh, and uh, by the way, researching this, um, I relied on Trove a lot because there are a lot of reports from the Sydney Morning Herald of the Dunbar. Yeah. And also on Trove I found this... Uh, um, booklet that was published at the time as sort of a newspaper supplement and it sold for one shilling and it had uh, a description of various descriptions of people of the scene that greeted them when they raced up to the gap um, uh, up to Watson's Bay on um, uh, over from Watson's Bay on that morning um, it had an account by the survivor it had the uh, you know the transcripts of the inquest mm -hmm various media reports so um uh, i mean i'm a i'm a i'm a trove trove nutter i love trove you find all sorts of fascinating things like that and when you're writing a book you're like <laughs> have you been sucked down the hole of text correcting yet though <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> if you do that you'll never write another book again because you'll be too busy I just wanted to make sure you let the interested audience know that you'd dived on some wreck sites. Yeah, and yeah. That you've been, you've dived on the Dunbar, and well, that adds a dimension to your writing. I find I'm reading the new book now, and it's passable, but it's certainly, <laughs> it's certainly immensely better for the fact that you are yourself a diver yeah. and you know a lot of stories about dive salvage and um, uh, the, the tension between people stealing things yeah. from wrecks and the heritage value. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure you made that clear to, the, to <laughs> our brethren here. Thanks, Tommy. <laughs> But yeah, I mean that that obviously is really really useful um, when you're writing about shipwrecks to have some experience actually diving on them. Yeah, and then you've got the pirate girls coming. Yes, yes. So this is I can't wait for this. After I finish the wreck, um, mum's, mum's rolling her eyes. <laughs> She's she you gets the sea. <laughs> she gets this in stereo. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, after the wreck and after the Valley of the Swells, which is going to be Montserrat number five, I am desperate to write a book which I'm going to call The Venus Mutineers about two women called... Uh, did I mention Charlotte Badger and Kitty Hegarty earlier? Yeah. Yes, yes. So I want to write their story as well. So um, so there's lots for us to look forward yes, to. Yes, yes, yes. Australia's first female pirates. I think we Thelma might be seeing Meg again <laughs> uh, before too so. long. But for now, I think that's probably a lovely spot to end our conversation down here. We are going to go up to the foyer and enjoy some refreshments so we can keep chatting about wild women and the wild seas that they sailed on. Yes. Um, I love a ballsy convict woman in a boat. <laughs> <laughs> if you know of any, <laughs> let, let Meg know. Um, 
The bookshop's open, so if you'd like to buy copies of Fledge at a 10% discount tonight, now's your chance. You can get it signed by the author. I'm pretty sure we've also got books one to four of the Montserrat series, and of course you can get both authors to sign that tonight, if you ask very nicely. Um, but thank you, Meg, for a thank wonderful you. book and Thanks, a wonderful Catherine. conversation, and thank you all for coming. Please thank join you. me in thanking Meg. Thank you. Thank you very much.